Good morning, everybody. Great to see all of you here today. Welcome to Solana Valley Church. And doesn't the sanctuary look beautiful? Thank you to everyone who uh, helped to decorate it. It looks wonderful. And I think it should, uh, I think we should all uh, do, it, it would behoove us to follow Elsa's lead today and get our jingle on. What do you say? Uh, let's stand together. And let's let's do some singing. Let's put our hands together like this. Here we go. All right, sing angels. Here we go. Angels we have heard on high. Sweetly singing o'er the plains and the mountains in reply, echoing their joyous strain. Here. Oh, come. Oh, come on. 
Church, you can have a seat. Get settled here. Where this morning I get the privilege again of getting our hearts and minds focused on revival and revival prayer. 
That song we just sang was a call for us to come, to come and to adore him. This season of year, we are focused on the birth of Jesus, the birth of our Savior. That is our focus. Yet for some, Jesus isn't even in the picture. Some are caught up in the to-dos of the holiday season without any attention given to Jesus. I want to encourage us all to protect our hearts, to protect our schedule, and to protect our time with God during this season. We don't want to miss out on the great blessing that God offers. Well, what can we do? We can pray. We can pray for ourselves, we can pray for our community, and we can pray for our world to have their eyes and their ears and their hearts turned toward God. Without it, we may spend our lives toiling for the wrong things, and we may shortchange future generations. Historically, revival is an inbreaking of the kingdom of God into our world and reordering our world for a specific period of time. In revival, many are humbled, many are saved, and the world pivots and history is never the same. I'm not speaking of the old Southern Baptist tents revivals, although those are really cool. Um, but I'm speaking of a culture of prayer for revival over the course of years built into the DNA of the local church. There's a, a somebody, a gal by the name, or excuse me, a gentleman by the name of Martin Lloyd, Lloyd, Lloyd Jones says in his book Revival. If I may put it bluntly and clearly, what is needed is not a stunt, but the action of God that will stun people. It's pretty, pretty riveting. Well, why should we as a church pray for revival? Well, first, we need to pray for God's power. In Acts 1-8, excuse me, in Acts 1-6, Jesus' disciples ask him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? Now, they were looking for a military, military leader to come um, change the Roman, the way the Romans were running the government and, and just take down Rome. But Jesus' answer to them was this. It is not for you to know the time or dates the Father has, has set by his own authority. But you, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and, and Judea and Samaria and all the ends of the earth. There's a certain amount of power that mankind has been given. We can be persuasive. We can be innovative. We can plan and we can organize and pull off amazing feats. But all of those things are nothing compared to the power that's held within God. When a church prays for revival... That church is praying for power not of their own. They are praying for the power of the Holy Spirit to be poured out in great measure, greater than they can imagine. It is a prayer of faith, it is a prayer of need, and it is a prayer of humility. Well, in addition to praying for power, we want to pray for a great awakening. In Acts chapter 3, Peter is speaking to the onlookers and he says, Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out and times of refreshing may come from the Lord and that he may send the Messiah who has been appointed you 
even Jesus. In history, we have heard of great revival. We've heard of revivals as the Great Awakenings. People who were far from God were awakened, awakened to His beauty, His nature, and His presence. If there's anything needed today, it is an awakening from our slumber. We are so sleepy toward God, even the best among us, and our God sensibilities are so dreary and numbed that many Christians no longer even pick up their Bible. We haven't merely been entertained. There's been distractions by, by, by media and entertainment, but we fail to be awed by the, by the God of the universe. The church that prays for revival then is praying for an awakening to God, for us to wake out of our slumber, and we're praying for times of refreshing to come. And finally, revival, when it happens, it brings salvation to many. In Acts chapter 2, it says, We see the fellowship of the believers praising God and enjoying the favor of all people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Revival always demands attention. People are aware it's going on and it's not silent. When it's happening, people are aware there is revival. Those who currently turn their back to the Lord in times of revival, they turn toward God miraculously all of the work that pastors and leaders and elders do for 50 years God can do in one moment that is done bringing God is in the business of bringing people to himself and therefore manifesting his glory and that is done best when people are saved, when Jesus is lifted up, and all people are drawn to him. That happens in massive quantities when there's a great awakening and great wonder in times of revival. You see, it really comes down to we pray for power, we pray for awakening, and we pray for salvation for people to come. And it's all done by God. But what's our part? What's our part? Our part is to pray, to show up and let God do what only God can do. Our world and our spirits need revival. We as a church want to be praying and seeking God's power, a great awakening, and for many who are far from God to be saved. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you, and Lord, you are worthy. You are worthy. You are worthy of all glory and all honor and all of our praise. We ask now for forgiveness, for becoming sleepy in our devotion to you for becoming warm in our affections to you for putting anything of this world in your rightful place in our lives may we as a people and as a nation repent of our sin and turn toward you and then God turn your eyes to us and forgive us and heal our land revive awaken and save may we live for you love others with your love and may we honor you with our lives and God may we just show up May we just show up and pray and then God we ask for you to do only what you can do we love you and we honor you this morning in Jesus name amen Thank you so much, Carolyn. I want to invite you to stand one more time, church, and we're going to sing a song of revival. A song of revival, asking God to make us one.
with the Father, one with the Spirit, one with the Son of God, one with our sister, one with our brother, one family by the blood. Make us one. Make us one. You will. Your will be done. Make us one. Oh, yeah. One heart. One heart with heaven. One mind connected. One body unified. Bind us together, now and forever. Jesus, be glorified. Make us one. Make us one. You will. Your will be done. Make us one. Once again now. Make us one. worshiping with us. Go ahead and have a seat. Well, good morning. What a wonderful prayer to make us all one. We are so glad that you came and joined with us this morning in worshiping our Lord and Savior. And a special hello to our Facebook and our YouTube viewers. We just really want to live out our mission as a church, and we encourage you to worship, grow, serve, and reach. So, 
One way we can do this is by connecting in groups. I know a lot of groups are kind of winding down now, but in the new year we'll be starting a new series, and a lot of us will be starting that same series on Galatians. So we just really want to encourage you to connect with different groups that may be going on and also serving. If you have a passion to serve, we need greeters, we need people to help with children's ministry, media, any type of um, gift that you feel God's given you. We really encourage you just step out of that comfort zone. Sometimes that's what it takes, but I just really want to encourage you to do that. You can find info on group and serving opportunities on our SVC app. And if you don't have the app, it is definitely a free um, app. You can go to the App Store or Google Play. Just um, Google Solano Valley Church, and you can download it from there. So first, I want to let you know, again, after Carolyn's revival prayer, that is um, just the words that she spoke that, that's so Um, important and effective on how we get together and pray. I just really want to encourage everyone to come tonight. It's at 630 here. You don't have to pray out loud. It's just by coming together as a body and um, agreeing with whatever's being prayed over and for that um, God hears us and blesses us through that. So I just really encourage you. It's a great uplifting time. Um, your heart is always encouraged. It's never a bad time to come out and pray if you have that opportunity. Um, and then we just know that God, when we pray, it changes us and allows us to participate in God's work. And that in itself is a blessing as well. Um, it has to be intentional and it has to be frequent. So, again, just invite you to come out. Um, join us in prayer. It's a great time, 630 tonight here at church. We are also excited to be hosting an in-person Christmas Eve celebration this year. It'll be at 6 p.m., and we just invite you to join us for a special evening of Christmas carols and encouraging scripture readings um, and just celebrating the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ. Also, we want to thank you for how you have generously contributed to our food and our coat drive Um, We have delivered many coats to the children in need at the Leaven, and we'll continue to collect them until next Sunday. So next Sunday is the last Sunday to bring in the coats. But all three food bins are almost at the top, and they're behind our sound booth. But we will continue to collect the food all the way through the end of the year. So thank you so much for your kindness and your generosity there. Right now, we want to continue our worship with our giving And one of the ways that we express our worship of God is through our giving because it shows God that we trust him. It's always a way for our hearts to become in one with God and that we're reminding ourselves that our security doesn't lie in money or monetary things or possessions, but it lies in Christ alone. And there are five ways that we can give here at the church. You can do giving online by going to www.solanovalley.org forward slash giving. You can also just tap give on that SVC phone app that you've just downloaded. Um, You can also send a check physically to our location. It is our address is 1307 Oliver Road, Fairfield, California, 94534. You can also just text G-I-V-E to 707-883-3019. 
And then if you're here in person, we have a mail slot at the back. It's secured. It's a lockbox. It's just a little silver um, mail slot that you can uh, drop your check in there or any prayer requests as well can go in there. Um, That's a great uh, way to do that if you're here. Thank you again so much for your generosity. Christmas. I know it's a little early to say that for some of you, but I want to say it anyway. Uh, really glad you're with us. Thanks for joining us today. Uh, if you're joining us either through YouTube or Facebook, we're really glad you're with us as well. Thanks for being with us today. Uh, I, I really enjoy Christmas. I enjoy um, uh, I, just everything about it. I do. I enjoy getting together with friends. I enjoy getting together with family. Uh, I enjoy uh, the gift giving. I enjoy uh, I just I, I enjoy certain Christmas stories. I, I, I love uh, obviously I love the stories of the Bible, and that's where our focus is going to be over the next few weeks. But also like a lot of other Christmas stories that that are just kind of fun to watch. You know, this last week I think it was Thursday night, uh, Joy and I watched uh, White Christmas uh, with uh, uh, with Bing Crosby and uh, Danny Kaye, and I don't remember the gals' names that are in it, but just really enjoyed watching that. There are other uh, like Christmas movies, I enjoy watching. When when Caleb was a little guy, uh, his favorite movie, I remember, he was probably, I don't know, he was maybe two years old, I think. And um, and his favorite movie was the remake of Miracle on 34th Street. I don't know if any of y'all have seen it with, is his name Dylan McDermott? Is that the guy's name? Whatever. Anyway, but uh, these other uh, stars in the movie. And Caleb just loved the movie. And the thing is, is that at, at that young, I don't really think he understood the storyline that well. But I think what he enjoyed and what he loved was just the expressions of people, uh, he, the smiles, I think. Uh, but I think he was really drawn to the kindness uh, and the joy uh, of the person who played Santa Claus in it. Because he just came across as a joyful person, a kind and gentle person. And I think children pick up on that. And so for him, it was fun to watch, not because of the storyline, but because what he saw in the person, what he saw. And, um, and so uh, he would all, always, he'd call the movie Chris, Chris. So uh, whenever he wanted to watch it, he'd say, Chris, Chris, you know, Chris, Chris. And so we would watch that. But uh, I love uh, stories about Christmas. And, uh, you know, for some of us, Christmas is a time of great joy, celebration. It's fun being with friends. It's fun being with family. It's fun uh, giving presents, receiving presents, that kind of thing. But for some of us, sometimes Christmas can be a difficult time. It can be a challenging time. I know for some of us in our church, uh, this is a first Christmas for some of you without a loved one. And uh, so, so Christmas can be a lot of fun. But at the same time, we can also feel both joy but also um, pain, and we can feel disappointment. And so uh, this morning, 
as we kick off this series looking at Christmas stories, I want to take just a moment and I want to address this whole issue of disappointment. And I think it's a great place to begin the story of Christmas. I believe it's a great place to begin the story of Christmas because most people go through times where they struggle with disappointment. Uh, Sometimes people struggle with disappointment with God. Uh, Things just haven't turned out the way we thought they would. God hasn't worked the way we thought he would. Uh, Maybe we experience a great loss. Uh, Maybe we pray for something. Maybe we pray for something not just once or twice, but we pray day after day after day. Hundreds of times. We pray day after day, year after year after year. And maybe we even pray for this thing that is so important to us. And we pray not just for days and not just for weeks or months or years, but we pray for decades. And it feels like that prayer falls on deaf ears. Or maybe sometimes we, we, there is a, a promise, a promise that we see in God's word. And, and we want to build our lives on this promise and, and yet we, um, uh, and it just feels like God is slow. And keeping his promise. And the reason it's important to, to, to bring this up is because this is a place a lot of us have lived or perhaps are living right now. Or one day we will live there. But it's also important because that's where the Christmas story begins. The Christmas story begins in a time of great pain. The Christmas story begins in a time where people are struggling with disappointment. It begins in a time where people have been praying and they're praying about some things that are very important and dear to them. And they feel like their prayers are falling on deaf ears. They're praying about promises. And it feels like God is slow in keeping his promises. And some people, they've given up on prayer. Uh, And it's called 400 Years of Silence. 400 Years of Silence. And where I want to begin the Christmas story is in the book of Malachi. The book of Malachi, which may seem like an unlikely place for you. And I've got this up on the screen. If you have your Bible, I'd encourage you to open up. If you have it on your smartphone, I would encourage you to to look at, at it from the NIV. But I'm going to read to you, and I'm going to read for you from the book of Malachi, and then I'm going to make a bridge from Malachi into the book of Luke, because it's exactly what Luke, the the gospel writer, does in the gospel of Luke. See, in the book of Malachi, chapter 4, the scripture says this. uh, Malachi makes this prophecy about, about 400 years before the birth of Jesus. And he writes and he says, see, I will send the prophet Elijah before the great and dreadful day of the Lord. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents. Or else I will come and strike the land uh, with, with total destruction. Literally, the Hebrew says, with a curse. Now, I want to pick up in, in the Gospel of Luke. And in Luke chapter 1, I'm going to begin here in verse, verse uh, 
5, and I'm going to read through to verse 25, and I'll probably pause a couple of places, give you a little bit of commentary, and then we're going to dive into uh, the message. But in, in Luke chapter uh, 1, beginning in verse 5, the Bible says this. It says, In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah. Very, very quickly, Herod the Great. There were a lot of different Herods. Uh, several are mentioned in uh, the Gospels and in the Bible. Uh, this would have been Herod the Great. We know these events took place around. It's very interesting. Luke was a historian. I mean, Luke was a doctor by trade, by training, in case you didn't know. He was a doctor, like Dr. Rich, okay? But he was a doctor, but he was also uh, a historian. And it's very interesting because he fills he fills the Gospel of Luke with timestamps, and he talks about key people in history who they're not necessarily directly a part of the story that he's telling in that moment, but he gives people timestamps, which is very unique, very interesting. It's what a historian does when they write. And so he says, in the time of Herod, uh, Herod, king of Judea, by the way, he's called Herod the Great. He's not called Herod the Great because he was a great guy, okay? Uh, he was a pretty lousy guy. In fact, Caesar Augustus, you remember Caesar Augustus? Uh, he was the Caesar ruled uh, the Roman Empire at the time that, of the birth of Jesus. He was the nephew of Julius Caesar. Uh, reigned for a very, very long time, a most powerful person in the world of his day. Uh, but Caesar Augustus once said about, about Herod the Great, he says, it's better to be Herod's sow than his son. Now, the reason he said it would be better to be Herod's sow than son is in the Greek, uh, the word for, for sow and the word for son begin with the same letter, similar to English. But the reason he said that is because, because, uh, uh, Herod played the part of being the king of the Jews, although he was actually a Dumian by, uh, by ethnicity. Uh, but, but because he played the part of a Jew, he wouldn't eat pork. But what Herod the Great would do is he would kill a son. And he killed at least two that I can remember. He may have killed three. I, I can't remember. And I know he killed at least one of his wives. He was insanely jealous. He was evil, uh, desperately, horribly Wicked, insanely evil. Uh, and so, uh, and, and we'll talk more about that later in the Christmas story. Because Herod's story uh, is interwoven with the Christmas story. Uh, in the time of Herod, uh, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive. And they were both very old. In, in, in the day of Jesus, it's estimated there were roughly 20,000 priests. They were broken up into 24 divisions. And each division would serve twice a year in the temple. For a time span of one week. And what they would do is they would, uh, at the beginning of the day, they would burn incense that would represent the prayers of the people of Israel. Then they would bring a morning sacrifice. And then later in the day, they would bring what they called the evening sacrifice. Again, followed by the burning of incense, which represented the prayers uh, of the people of God, the nation of Israel. And what were the people praying? They were praying... Uh, primarily for the coming of Messiah. 
They were praying for the coming of Messiah. They were praying to be free from the yoke of Rome. And they were praying uh, for freedom. And what... uh, and, and because there were a lot more priests than there were priestly duties, people would be chosen by lot to do different things. So it's possible you could be a priest your entire life, show up twice a year for years, and never actually perform a priestly duty. Okay? Just that's important to know. That's important to understand. Uh, where am I at? Verse 6? Uh, yeah, verse 6. This is, uh, no, where am I at? Verse 8, thank you. I had turned to another gospel, the gospel of Mark. Uh, That was really going to be an interesting sermon there. Uh, Verse 8, once when Zechariah's division was on duty, he was serving as a priest before God. He was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. Now, at this point in time, the focus of the entire nation was on Zechariah. Because he was going in as their representative, and he was burning this incense that represented the prayers of the people of God. Verse 10, and, and when the time for the burning of incense came, all the uh, assembled worshipers were praying outside. Verse 11, then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear, as you would be too, as I would be too. First of all, you're in the holy place, in the temple, you're there alone, and suddenly there's a person on your right. Okay? That would be enough to startle you. Okay? You ever all of a sudden become aware that there's a person really close to you that you weren't expecting to be there? Maybe in kind of a lonely place? It feels kind of weird. But then when you look and the person is an angel... Uh, and when you read through the scriptures, whenever people encountered angels, they were, were stricken with fear. And so he's afraid. He's greatly afraid. Uh, when Zechariah saw him, he was startled. He was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Now think about this. Your prayer has been heard. Wait a second. I, I'll, I'll get more into that in a moment. Um, Your prayer has been heard. Your wife will bear you a son, and you are to call him John, which means God is gracious. He will be a joy and a delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. Now, this is what I want to remind you of. Zechariah and uh, and Elizabeth were very old. Uh, Elizabeth was what they would call barren. She was unable to have children. She was sterile. They were old. This was, from a human standpoint, absolutely impossible. They were old. They were beyond traditional childbearing years. Which meant, most likely, they had prayed for a child, not for just a few days or a few weeks or even a few months. They had probably prayed for years and very possibly had prayed for decades. Would Zechariah be in the temple praying for a child? More likely, more likely in this moment, he would have been praying for the coming of Messiah. Because that's what the people of Israel prayed for in this moment. And what 
The angel says to him, he says, do not be afraid, Zechariah. Uh, again, verse 13, do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son. You are to call him John. He will be a joy and a delight to you. Many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or strong drink. Uh, or fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he's born. And this child is going to be unique in a lot of ways. Unique because he's born to a woman who's barren. Unique because he's born to a couple who are advanced in years. Unique because he was going to be filled with the Spirit while he was still in his mother's womb. Verse 16. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the, uh, in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Now, this is what I want you to think about. Remember, remember we, we, that, that, that for there had been 400 years of silence, 400 years of silence since the time of Malachi. And now... And now um, the angel is talking to Zechariah about this coming of this one who's going to be his son, who's going to prepare the way of the Lord. Verse 18, Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I'm an old man. My wife is well along in years. That's not an unfair question, all right? I mean, you know, it's kind of like, gee, God, this kind of feels like impossible, you know? And, uh, and he's speaking to this angel, and, and he says, how can I be sure of this? In verse 19, the angel said to him, I am Gabriel, which means man of God. By the way, in, in, in the scriptures, we see many, many angels. The Bible says myriads upon myriads. But there are only two angels that are named in, in the scriptures. The only two are Michael, who's named, I think, like seven or eight times, and then Gabriel, who's uh, named, I think, twice. And, and sometimes people come up with a lot of other names, just so you know. You know, those other names don't come from the Scriptures themselves. But these, these are the two that we know, Gabriel and Michael. And, and so the angel said to him, he said, I am Gabriel, standing in the presence of God, and I have been sent. Um, hang on a second. I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens. Because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. And the scripture says, um, meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. You know, they're like, hey, what's going on here? You know, should someone go inside and make sure Zechariah is okay? Uh, and so they're outside and they're wondering what's going on. And uh, in, in verse 22, it says, when he came out, he could not speak to them. They realized that he had seen a vision in the temple, for he kept making signs to them, but remained unable to speak. And so Zechariah comes out. Normally what the priest does is he does that little uh, blessing that you read in the book of Numbers about the Lord bless you, keep you, make his face shine upon you, and be gracious. And so he comes out. He's supposed to pronounce this, great, uh, this, this blessing, and instead there's nothing. And he's just through hand motions, trying to convey what's happened. It's like he's playing charades, you know. And, and, and they gather that he's seen some kind of a, of a vision. 
Verse 23 says, When his time of service was completed, he returned home. After this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant. And for five months, she remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. Now, I want to go back for just a moment. I want to go back to two verses. I want to go back to verses 16 and 17. Okay? And what what Luke writes, he says this about John. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord, uh, to the Lord, uh, to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom uh, of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. When I was preparing for this message, this this question kept going through my brain. Why does Luke begin his gospel by telling the story of John? Why? You know, each one of the gospel writers, they begin their gospels a little bit differently. So like when Matthew writes, he begins by giving a very, very long genealogy that traces the birth of Jesus from Abraham to David, from David to, to the time of Zerubbabel and the ex, or excuse me, the exile, from the exile to Zerubbabel, and then from Zerubbabel, try to say that three times fast, from Zerubbabel uh, to, uh, to, to Jesus. And then he tells the story of how an angel, I believe probably Gabriel, comes uh, to to Joseph. When Mark tells uh, his story of Jesus, he begins with the preaching ministry of John. He ignores the birth entirely. When we get to Luke, he begins the gospel by telling the story about the coming of John and the birth of John. And then John, uh, not never confuse John the Baptist with John, the writer of the gospel. Two different people. John, the, the gospel writer of the Gospel of John, he begins his gospel by saying that in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. Uh, it, it, the Word was uh, with God in the beginning. And, and he talks about the Word creating uh, all of creation. And, and so each of the gospel writers began their gospels differently. And I, I was just this week, I was just really for reflecting, thinking about this question. Why does Luke begin his gospel by talking not about the birth of Jesus, but the birth of the forerunner of Jesus. And I believe that what, what, what Luke is doing, and uh, there's a guy, his name is, uh, what's his name, Mark Strauss. He's written a few books, uh, was one of the translators of the NIV Bible. Uh, uh, he is a pretty you know, highly esteemed scholar, theologian. Uh, but one of the things that, that Mark Strauss says about John is John, and this is not unique to Mark Strauss. A lot of Bible teachers, a lot of Bible scholars uh, agree with this, is that, 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 that John the Baptist was the last of the Old Testament prophets. He was the last of the Old Testament prophets, and he is like, he acts as a bridge between the end of the Old Testament scriptures particularly Malachi, bringing us to the story of Jesus. And so he's a bridge. And uh, today what I want to do is I just want to look at and talk briefly, briefly about 
uh, why, uh, about the ministry of, of, of John. And I want to tie this back to this idea of disappointment with God, disappointment with praying and praying and praying, sometimes days, weeks, months, years, sometimes decades. The nation of Israel praying hundreds of years for the coming of Messiah. And it felt like that God was slow in keeping his promises. But I think there are some really important things to see in the text. The first thing I want you to see is this, is that, that John came in the spirit and power of Elijah to prepare the way of the Lord's coming. That he, he came, that, that what, 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 what Luke is doing in his gospel is he's showing us that, that John is the fulfillment of Malachi's prophecy. That Malachi, what Malachi had said at the end of uh, Malachi 4, he said, See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before the great and dreadful day the Lord comes. And in Malachi 3.1, Malachi wrote, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Speaking of the coming of John. uh, The coming of John. And that's exactly what what Luke does is he tries to tie John back to the prophecy of Malachi. He says, he will go before the Lord, verse 17, he will go before the Lord in the spirit and the power of Elijah. That, That John is the one who goes before the Lord. He is the one who prepares the way for the Lord. That, that he is the, the fulfillment of uh, what Malachi spoke of. Second thing I want you to see here is this, is that John came to turn the hearts of parents to their children. That, that uh, in, in uh, Malachi, Malachi says this, he says that of Elijah, who is to come, he will turn the hearts of the parents to the children and the hearts of the children to their parents. And what uh, Luke says with regards to the coming birth of John is that, that he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of parents to their children. That, that what, what John, in effect, does is that, that, um, that he is... Okay, I'm trying to figure out how to say this, and I apologize. Um, one of the things I think we need in America, one of the things I think we need, is I, I think we need revival, spiritual renewal, like what we prayed for earlier. But another thing I think we need in America today is healing of the family unit. I, I really believe that we need healing in our families. I think oftentimes there can be a lot of pain in the home. I, I think sometimes that, that parents and children uh, can feel a, a rift in their relationships. Are you with me on this? Because the scriptures speak to it. So sometimes there can be a lot of pain between one generation and another generation. And part of the role and the purpose of John, and part of what Malachi speaks to at the end of his prophecy, was to, that, that the coming of this one who would prepare the way of the Lord was to bring the hearts of parents back to their children and children back to their parents. I believe, you know, every once in a while, <laughs> I'll have someone who's like a younger parent. 
And they'll want to have maybe, like, I don't know, they, they want us to do, like, a parenting class. And there's nothing wrong with that. I think it's fantastic. I mean, I bought some material while we were in at a, a, a conference recently on marriage that I'm going to use, and, and I want to use it to teach some of the people in our church and people in our community about parenting because I think it's going to be really, really helpful. But if you want to know how to be a great parent, I'm not talking to those of you who have toddlers at home. I'm talking to those of you who may have adult children. You may even have grandchildren. I think you can have a powerful impact in the lives of your kids. I believe this. I believe you can have a powerful impact in the lives of your grandkids. And I think it begins, I think in part, in this teaching, the teaching of Malachi, and in the teaching of Luke, that the purpose of John was to, um, was to bring the hearts of parents back to the children and children to parents. See, I, I believe there are a lot of books on parenting that you can read. You can read books about how to parent t- toddlers. You can read parents about how to parent teenagers. You can read books about how to parent uh, adult children. But I believe the most important thing that you and I can do is this, is to follow Jesus. I do. You know, I, I, the, the Bible, I, I honestly believe that if we just live out the teaching of Scripture in our lives and our relationships, that we have a powerful impact. I, I believe this. I, I believe that when we choose to follow Jesus, when we choose to pray for our kids, when we choose to um, engage, uh, not to judge, uh, not to argue, not to bicker, but just to love and be engaged, I believe that God can bring healing. I do. I believe that. I, I believe it's in the Scriptures. And I believe that part of the role of the ministry of John was to promote healing in the family unit. John came to turn the hearts of parents to their children. That's what the Scripture teaches us. Third thing I want you to see in the text is this. That John came to turn uh, the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous. Uh, in, um, throughout the Scriptures... Um, throughout the scriptures, we see the words righteousness and wisdom oftentimes are, are brought together. They're kind of like woven together. Uh, they're kind of like, I don't know, it's kind of like heads and tails on a quarter. If you have a quarter, you have heads. And if you have a quarter, you've got tails. You don't have tails without heads. You don't have heads without tails. They are all a part of this one thing we call a quarter. And I believe that righteousness and wisdom are just like that. That where you have one, you'll have the other. That 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 what what um, what Luke says about about John, he says he will go on the power of the Lord and the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of parents to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous, that we see wisdom and we see righteousness uh, together. In, in Proverbs chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, the Bible says, uh, these are the Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, to know wisdom, to know wisdom and instruction, 
to understand words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, and equity. It all goes together. Wisdom, righteousness, justice, equity. It's 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 a package deal. We see it again later in Proverbs in, in uh, Proverbs chapter nine verse nine. It says, "Give instruction to a wise man, and he will be still wiser. Teach a righteous man, and he will increase in learning." That idea of wisdom and righteousness, righteousness and wisdom, a part of the role of John was to turn people, the disobedient, to the wisdom of the righteous. Or the righteousness of the wisdom. Whatever. Uh, yeah, turn the, the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous. Fourth thing I want you to see in the text is this. Is that God, John came to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. He, he came in, in, in Malachi chapter 3 verse 1. Uh, Malachi said of the coming of John the Baptist, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Um, in Here in... in um, uh, the angel, Gabriel, as he's speaking to Malachi, he says he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. To make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Now, let me ask you a question. How many of you are ready for Christmas? Two hands, three hands, four, five. Okay, five hands, five hands, five people ready for, for Christmas. Okay. The rest of us, we got some shopping to do. All right, uh, we got some shopping to do. Maybe we got some plans to make. Maybe we got some, uh, yeah, I don't know, parties to have people over. All that kind of good stuff, you know. Uh, getting ready for Christmas takes a lot, doesn't it? By the way, thank you everybody who helped decorate this room, making it ready for Christmas. Thank you, thank you for doing that. But you know what? There's something more important to be ready for than the coming of Christmas. Now, I'm pretty sure when you leave the doors today, where you're going to be thinking about probably a lot between now and December 25th is being ready for Christmas. But there's something more important to be ready for than the coming of Christmas. That the really important thing that we need to be ready for is the coming of the Lord. That the, the really important thing to be ready for, you know, for 400 years... For 400 years, God was silent. The nation of Israel was praying, God, send your Messiah. Why are you taking so long? For 400 years, they were waiting. Interesting thing, they were waiting, but they weren't ready. They were waiting, but they weren't prepared. They weren't ready for the coming of the Lord. John came to make ready a people prepared for the coming of the Lord. And what I'm saying is this, is that we are waiting for the coming of the Lord. The question is, are we ready? Are we prepared for the coming of the Lord? You know, you can wait for something and not be ready. You can wait for something and not be prepared. You know, the, the Bible tells us, Jesus says this, he says that, that the coming again, his coming will be like the coming of a thief at night. It'll come at a time when you don't expect it. 
When a thief comes, he doesn't send you a little note, you know, beforehand. Oh, tonight at, you know, 2.53 in the morning when you're sound asleep, I'll be showing up, you know. No, no, he's going to come at a time that you don't expect it. And Jesus says, and Jesus is not a thief, but that's the way he's going to come. He's going to come at a moment that we don't expect. The question is, will we be ready? Will we be prepared? What God wants for us is he wants us to be ready. Jesus came the first time to seek and to save the lost. Jesus is coming again to judge the living and the dead. Those who believe in him will be saved. Those who do not believe in him will be judged and eternally condemned. You know, a lot of people are hustling to be ready for Christmas. The question is, are we ready for Jesus to come again? How do we get ready for the coming of the Lord? I, I think several things. I think several things are important here, but really only one thing. Really only one thing. Only one thing is necessary. Follow Jesus. That's it. Follow Jesus. Follow Jesus in all things. Follow Jesus in everything. It means giving Jesus first place in absolutely everything. Where my opinion on anything disagrees on what God has revealed in his word, I need to make a correction. Where anything in my life is in conflict with what Scripture teaches us, I need to make a correction. Is follow Jesus. It doesn't mean follow him perfectly because none of us will ever do that. But follow him consistently. In our church, the way we've talked about this is we, we it's on the wall. Worship, grow, serve, and reach. Follow Jesus. How? By worshiping Him. By worshiping Him. By, by, you know, and when I say worship, I'm not just talking about attending a service once a week. I'm talking about like every day worshiping Him. Every day entering His presence with the, We talked about this last week and when we looked at, at Psalm 100. That we enter His presence with what? With thanksgiving. We enter his presence with what? Joyful praise. But we worship him. We worship him personally, daily. We worship him corporately, weekly. By the way, weekly worship doesn't mean 1.7 times a month. That is what the national average is, but that's not what it means. The practice of the Old Testament saints and the teaching of the Scriptures, both in the Old Testament and New Testament, practice in the Old Testament and New Testament, was the idea of coming together with the people of God in corporate worship weekly. But worshiping corporately, worshiping individually, but worshiping, giving God first place in all things. Number two, to grow. Grow in Christ day by day. Not just by sitting through a service on a Sunday morning, Passively listening, then going out and getting ready for Christmas. But really, really growing. That taking time daily to be in the presence of God. To not just read the Word of God, but to humbly receive the Word implanted that's able to save our souls. But growing in Christ day by day. By, by serving. Serving. By the way, when we serve like Jesus, we live like Jesus. Uh, in in a consumer uh, consumer driven economy, in a consumer 
uh, shaped culture, many people live out the Christian faith more as consumers because we're discipled by the world. But we're not called to be consumers. We are called to be worshipers. We're called to be servants, to serving others over ourselves, serving Christ in all things. But to worship, go serve and reach. Reaching people in our community who don't know Jesus. By the way, everybody who's brought a jacket, everybody who's bought, brought food, thank you. Thank you. I have had so much fun. Can I tell you a quick story here and I'll wind it up? Reaching people who don't know Jesus. I've had so much fun going to the Levin once a week. Now, sometimes I feel like, you know, today feels like it's busy. This week feels like it's busy. I, you know, I, how can I justify doing this? And then I'm, I think, how can I justify not doing it? And, and, and I loved on Thursday. I had so much fun. I met this little guy. His name, his name is Juanito. Okay? He, a uh, little guy. Uh, he had been bullied by some kids earlier that day. He was crying. Uh, some older boys were, like, coughing on him, saying they had COVID and stuff like that, and they were just kind of tormenting him. And so after school, he came to the, the leaven. He asked if he could stay there because he was afraid and he was hurting. Oh, man. And uh, that day, that day, I, I got to tell him, and the other kids about Jesus. I got to do that. I got to tell them the story of Christmas beginning in the Old Testament with the story of Ruth and Boaz and the birth of their uh, son, uh, who was the great-grandfather of David, who was the great-great-grandfather many times removed of Jesus. But I got to tell them the story of Jesus, the story uh, of Christmas, the story of Ruth and Boaz. And then I got to give him this jacket. I don't know who bought it, but it's a blue plaid jacket. It kind of looks like a, a thick, thick shirt. But that little guy, when he put it on, it was like his face was beaming. He was just radiant with joy. He was running around, showing off with his friends, but just so excited. But when we do things, when we, we, we sacrifice and we give, and I want to say thank you for doing that, and when we begin to, to actually reach out in relationship with other people and actually point them to Jesus, that this is what we are about. That's what it looks like, being ready and being prepared for the coming of the Lord. It looks like worshiping, growing, serving, reaching others for Christ. And it, it looks like following Jesus in all things. John's uh, purpose was to go before the Lord Jesus Christ in the spirit and power of Elijah, to turn the hearts of parents to their children, to turn the disobedient to the, 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 uh, to the wisdom of the righteous, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. You know, sometimes in our praying, we can feel like we pray for a very long time, and it feels like our prayers, you know, are just kind of bouncing off the ceiling. Or sometimes we can build our lives on the promises of God. And what I want you to understand is this, is that God is always faithful in his timing, not necessarily my timing. That in our prayers, God is always faithful. God doesn't always give me everything I want. By the way, praying in the name of Jesus doesn't mean praying selfishly for what I want in the name of Jesus. Praying in the name of Jesus means praying the way Jesus would if he were me. But I think when we're praying the way Jesus would pray if he were us, and when we are building our life on the promises of God, 
ultimately, we may feel short-term disappointment, but long-term, we will have joy. Let me pray for us. I'm going to go ahead and invite the worship team to come on back up. God, you are a good God. You are always faithful. Your steadfast love endures forever. We thank you for your promises. We thank you, God, that you do hear our prayers. We thank you, God, that you do care, even when it feels like our prayers are maybe bouncing off the ceiling. That you see us in our pain, you see us in our disappointment, and you really do care. And you will be faithful in fulfilling all your promises. Lord Jesus, we look forward to the day that you come again. God, help us to live ready every day, prepared for the coming of the Lord. I pray this in Christ's name and for your glory. Amen. Gary, thank you so very much. And church, let's stand together one last time to worship our awesome and amazing God. Angels we have heard, angels we have heard on high, sweetly singing o'er the plains, and the mountains in reply, echoing their joyous strain. Shepherds, shepherds, why this jubilee? Why your joyous strains prolong? What the gladsome tidings be, which inspire your heavenly song? Thank you so much for being with us today. Have a wonderful week. Hope to see you back here tonight for Revival Prayer.